Open up your Bibles in whatever form you have to the book of Acts. We're going to jump right into text this morning. Guys, don't forget the, the conference is coming up in a couple weeks. So if you're going that, Greg, where are you? See Greg, because Greg's driving, or Tony and Greg are driving. All right, we are going to be picking up at the end of Acts chapter 4. So when your Bibles turn to Acts chapter 4, you know, we have a, a stranger, more difficult text in the book of Acts to go through today. So we're going to jump into it and then we'll give a lot of run-in uh, subject matter-wise before, well, to give context to what's going on. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. We're thankful for who you are, this incredible being who's created the heavens and the earth, who's created men and women in your image. It's because of you that we have life. It's because of you that we know anything about Jesus Christ. It's because of you that we have this community of not just other human beings, but human beings who love you and are pointed towards you. I want to honor you, Lord. I want to respond to your incredible love. I want to know your love. So we're asking for your spirit this morning that you give us your mind, your heart, your understanding as we walk through your precious word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 4, picking up in verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed were his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor is there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of those things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one or to each as anyone had need. And Jose, I have no idea how to pronounce that in English at all. Most translations say Joseph, so we'll say Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to, be filled, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Told you it was weird. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me, 
whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on their beds and couches. And at le- uh, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Again, strange. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we're going to pick up on the language and give definition. So in verse 14 where it says, it talks about the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Back up at the end of uh, uh, chapter 4 and verse 32, talking about the multitudes of those who believed And then in chapter 5, verse 11, it's talking about this great fear that comes upon all the church. So again, we're we're talking about a community that has responded to the circumstances that are going on, to the testimony of who Jesus Christ is, what he did, his resurrection, his ascension. So we're dealing with this specific community of individuals defined as the church. There are a lot in our culture that don't like the use of our assembly together being defined as this word church. Because often we think more it's the building, it's the property, it's the institution. So we're going to spend a lot of time this morning kind of given the long arc of the word of God to get us to this point in the book of Acts to understand what's going on culturally. So in the Old Testament, when they translated the Hebrew text into the Greek language, in the Old Testament, when we see the word congregation and we see the word assembly, it's the same Greek word that we get the word church from. And it's this, the definition of the word in, in, in the generic culture, it's a word that is used for those who are called to a place to be assembled together. So it could be a very civil, civic term of just, here's an assembly of people that have gathered together for whatever the purpose may be. So in the New Testament, whenever we see this word church, again, it's not identifying a structure or in organization, it's defined as the body of Christ. Individuals who have been called out of this world and called out of this culture that has a different set of foundational principles for life, why we exist, why we're here, plans, purposes, and intentions of life. We have been gathered out of the masses and we are assembled together in the name of the Lord. And this has been, as we've been in Acts already, we've seen Peter giving three different sermons in regards to the name of Jesus Christ, who he is, his nature and character, that there's no other name that we've been given whereby we must be saved. And again, we've talked about this idea of being saved. Saved from what? Ultimately, it's saved from death. 
So the long arc of the Bible to help us understand what's going on in this culture, in this community, and then even in our culture, in our community, is that there is a being who had the intention and the power to create everything that exists. When we look at nature, when we look at the universe, when you look at your own body, there, there is an intellect behind the design and the pattern of what exists. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that description, we have this, he created man, male and female, in his image. And this whole idea is that he created the universe, he created this, this earth, he created the environment to be the home and to be the dwelling of those that he created in his image to have relationship with. And immediately there in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the serpent. This morning's text, we see Satan, where Satan is dripping, speaking into the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, where it said that their heart had been filled with the words of Satan, filled with his deception to deceive not just their community, but to deceive, ultimately, they're attempting to hide from God. And this is the temptation that we see in Adam and Eve, that they were deceived, that they were listening to these words, that when they listened to those words, their relationship with the being who created them, the being whose image that they existed in, was now broken and is now damaged. So this is the long arc of the Bible as we watch. Here's God's plan A. He created the heavens and the earth. He created human beings to have a relationship, knowing that they were going to be broken. We all know what it's like to not just have a broken relationship with the Lord, but we can have brokenness in our marriage, with our children, with people in our community. We know what it's like to have those kinds of hurts and those kinds of pains. And when you follow the long arc of the Bible, everything that's being communicated is a reconciliation between broken human beings and the God who created them. So you sit in the first community, our first image of community is in the family of Adam and Eve in Genesis 4, where you have their children. And what happens in that community? Violence happens in that community. Cain kills his brother Abel. As we watch in the beginning chapters of the book of Exodus, we watch the descendants of these first human beings going out, forming nations. And we're told that in these nations that they're filled with brokenness. Filled with violence, not filled with relationship with God, but filled with rebellion against God. Living life for self, living life for the moment, forgetting the intention and the plan and the purpose that God had created them for and just doing whatever they wanted to do. So when we get to Genesis 12, we watch God choose one man out of the masses of humanity, Abraham. And that one man was called out of the world and called into a relationship with the Lord. So what we're watching in the book of Acts is the same message. These individuals that are hearing the truth about who God is. Ultimately hearing about who Jesus Christ is. What his death on the cross was all about. What is this testimony that this man died this brutal death and then he rose again on the third day? Why do we believe this? Why do we press into this? What is, the, what is the evidence associated with that? And again, as we're looking at the community here, the gathered ones here, it's people who have all responded to that message in agreement. So as we watch Abraham and you follow the track of his life, which we just went through the book of Genesis, ultimately, you know, they, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt 
major theme in the Bible, just Egypt, again, representing the world. You have God delivering this, this intentional, miraculous, through divine signs and wonders, salvation of his people out of slavery as a community, as individuals, for his plans and his purposes. Again, a lot of this imagery is being played out in the New Testament. But sandwiched in as they come out, this community is supposed to be a community that is based upon God's righteousness, based upon God's justice. We don't see that in them. We see major cycles of sin in Exodus chapter 34. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people because they have already constructed themselves an idol. They are already worshiping another God in opposition to the being who created them and has just delivered them. Moses is in prayer. He is asking God to, he wants to see God. He wants to see God's glory. God gives this definition that you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the description that's being given is this separation between God as holy, pure, clean, all the definitions we have about who he is and our brokenness in regards to our sin. That there, in this brokenness, in this relationship, there is no face-to-face relationship with God there's a division and ultimately what we're responding to in Christ is that reconciliation that he is the one who has removed the division but this is what I want us to get to it's the heart of God if you were to if we were to go sit down at a meal together and give context to one another's life we're going to share about who we are this is who I am this is where I was born this is what my life's about to help you get to know me what's important about this text in Exodus 34 is hear what God chooses to say when he declares his name here's what he is choosing to tell human beings who he created in his image who he is because often we try and define who God is based upon those that say they follow God right and we can all be a hypocrite we can all fail but here this is God's self-definition and self-declaration of who he is in Exodus 34 it says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God merciful and gracious long-suffering, patient, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Then the side that we don't like to talk about, he continues, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So God is declaring his mercy, his grace, his patience, his goodness, his truth, his forgiveness. And then at the same time, those who choose to remain in their sin, remain in their rebellion, remain in their rejection, there are consequences not only in their relationship with God, but in their community. So here in the community, these are, this is the nation of Israel that has been called out of Egypt together. And there's a purity that belongs in the community. 
And this is why this is important as we talk about the purity of the community of the early church. So in that, in, in where we began, it talks about that those who are believers that have responded to who Jesus Christ is in faith, they've been called out of the community. It says that they're of one mind and of one heart. And this gets us into the context of one of the most important commands, not the, one of the, the most important commands. So through Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, the most important command comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it, tell, it says to hear, O Israel, so the entire community, those who have been called out of Egypt, those who are descendants of Abraham, the man that I called out of his culture in the first place. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, which means your mind, with all of your strength, your effort, your energy, what you choose to do. Verse 6 here it says, These words which I command you today, they shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, in private, when you walk by the way, when you're outside in public, when you lie down at night, when you rise up in the morning. Bind them as a sign on your hands, something that you're going to remember as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on, your, on the doorposts of your house and your gates. So this command in regards to your relationship with the being who has created you, he's talking about our heart condition. And ultimately, as we look at the church, those who are believers in Christ, at some point you have had God expose to you your heart, your brokenness, your mistakes, your failures, things that have been done to you that you have been damaged by through other people. And God's, our attention, his attention towards us is to tell us to be attentive to him, love him with all that we are, heart, mind, soul, strength. The second commandment comes out of Leviticus, buried in boring old Leviticus, Leviticus 19. So we have our relationship with God and now our relationship with one another in the community of believers. So same thing for the nation of Israel is the same thing for the body of Christ. This is Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So don't have hatred towards those that are in the community, but at the same time, don't allow them to cause you to shoulder their sin and their issues. Have the conversation. Discuss about what is right and wrong. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So very direct commandments. Again, Jesus teaching us that those are the greatest commandments in the Old Testament. All the law hangs on those two, loving God and loving others. All of that being this long arc because as we watch the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we watch the cycles of life. We watch the good, the bad, the ugly. We watch human beings do what human beings do. There's some really good stuff that we do as a community. There's some really bad stuff 
that we do as a community. We can look at the nation of Israel's history. We can look at church history and we can focus on the bright spots and we can focus on the dark spots. And ultimately, as we're getting here into the book of Acts, Luke has already written the Gospel of Luke, that we call it the Gospel of Luke. He's written a document to an individual, Theophilus, saying that other people have written to you testimony and witness about who Jesus Christ was. This is what he did. I've investigated these things. I have a very thorough understanding of these things. I'm writing to you a letter so that you'll be convinced and understand who it is and who you believe. And this is the gospel of Luke and the other three gospels that we can sit in the story and the account of who Jesus Christ is. And now as he's writing this second letter to Theophilus, he's given us a snapshot of the history of the church. And it's beginning in the book of Acts. Here we have the resurrected Jesus Christ giving commands and giving direction to those who are his followers. And the ultimate instruction is be my witnesses. In your life, in your relationship with me, witness me. As you process through different life experiences, as you talk, as you go about your day, love me. I love you. And again, we look at the cross for the demonstration of that love. We look to his resurrection for the proof of his power that he is the very God of gods who created the heavens and the earth. Because everybody else that has ever died is still dead. And we sit in this witness and this testimony that these individuals, they saw him alive again. And they waited there in Jerusalem for the gift, for the promise of the Holy Spirit to empower them and enable them to do what God was calling them to do. That's Acts chapter 2. So in the beginning, it's, it's here, there's this, there's this miracle, the sign and the wonder that gathers the crowd. We have Peter preaching the sermon, and all of a sudden you have souls of the community of Jerusalem hearing and responding and now becoming a part of this community, part of the church, being added by the Lord to his body, to his community. And then in Acts chapter 3, the past couple of weeks, we've looked at another miracle. Here's this man who was lame. He has now been made whole and he has been made strong, not because of who the apostles are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And again, the crowd gathers together. People respond. Some receive, some repent, some reject. And then in Acts 4, we see the very beginnings of opposition to who Jesus is in the body of Christ. So this is the long arc as we go through not just the word of God, but through Acts. We're going to watch this same pattern repeat over and over again. Here's a sign. Here's a wonder. Here's a circumstance. Here's the testimony of who Jesus Christ was in history. Here's the testimony and the witness of who Jesus Christ is in the community at that moment. And then that gives us hope and understanding in our relationship with Jesus Christ today in our community. Not just as me as an individual, but here in our community of called out ones. And again, not just in our local community, but the body of Christ as a whole throughout this world. So this is where the definition in regards to the multitude of those who believe. So there's masses of people who, are, who have already responded to this message. They are believers. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit. They are now part of the body of Christ. They're part of this community. They're in unity, this one heart, this one soul, in obedience and in response to the command that we have in the Old Testament, loving God, loving one another. 
Nobody is saying that anything that he possessed was his own. And this is what I titled this morning, Possession Without Ownership. How do you own something? How do you possess something? How do you have something in your control and in your power without owning it? Your home, your car, your education, your retirement. Go on down through the list of what is in your hand. This is what I own. This is what I have. And the question is, we, as we look at what is going on in this community, in Jerusalem, as people have responded to Jesus Christ in unity, in their hearts, there's a freedom. Their possessions do not have ownership of them, but what they possess is now not just, it's, it's the stewardship perspective. This is what's really hard because we can sit in this passage and do we want to do this as a community right now here in Alpharetta? Are you ready to sell your properties, sell your homes, bring those proceeds, laying them at the apostles' feet? This, this means that you've, you've released control. When we give our money to the church here, there is no personal ownership when it comes to a nonprofit, when it comes to a congregation and assembly. We're all stewards together. But when we give, we are saying, I just released control of what was in my possession, and I'm giving it over for the benefit of the community. So we do that in many different ways. And there's a specific circumstance that's going on in the early church in Jerusalem that is their context and whether, whether it's outward pressures, we don't know exactly because we don't see this happen in Asia Minor. We don't see this happen when the gospel goes to Greece. We don't see it when the gospel goes to Italy. We don't see it in North Africa. We don't see it in Mesopotamia or Iran or in India. We see it here in Jerusalem. And we see it successful for a period of time. But later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that there's a famine. And that famine that occurs in Jerusalem impoverishes the community. Not just the nation of Israel itself, but specifically the believing community. So that Paul on his missionary journeys, he's out there raising funds to give to the church in Jerusalem to help them in their lack, in their need. And that's what's going on, this, this, this heart, this transformation, as we've all responded to who God is, not just this idea of church, not this idea of I'm going to be controlled by this other class of people, a priestly class or a clergy class, but as we've responded to the name and the nature and the character of the God who has created us, as we're coming out of the definitions of whether it's other religious definitions, whether it's other community and culture cultural definitions, we are gathered together under the singular name and the singular umbrella and authority of Jesus. That means something. And what we're witnessing here is it means that there, there has been an internal transformation and an internal freedom. When we see here, there's, there's multiple snapshots of that there's, um, again, these things are being held in common. There is not personal ownership. Those who possess lands and homes, they are selling these things. They're laying them at the, the feet of the apostles. So this, uh, the structure is so that those who have need, which is, this is need in the Bible. This is uh, your need for existence, your food your clothing, 
your shelters. This isn't to satisfy the community's greed. This is to satisfy needs in the community. We need to eat. We need to be clothed. We have things that are necessary for our daily existence. So those who have are helping support everybody to make sure the community, that there's nobody that is in lack, that their needs are taken care of. Most of you have probably heard the term, the, the social gospel, where a lot of, whether it's congregations or nonprofits, will step into communities in the wor- world and help satisfy physical needs. Clean water. We need clean water for our daily existence. So usually a lot of those programs are dealing with the health of the community. So our, our community of Alpharetta, coming Atlanta in general, but here the specific needs of the community that are being taken care of, it's the needs of the body of Christ. So this isn't that the proceeds are coming in to the church and the church is distributing those needs, distributing those funds to take care of the needs of all the nation of Israel, the whole community of Jerusalem. They are there specifically taking care of the needs of the body in relationship. And again, this is, this is recognizing those who have a, a like mind and a like heart in regards to who God is and who Jesus Christ is. When it talks about this great power, the great power that's being performed through the apostles, at the end of last week, we, we watched this prayer where they're asking God to grant to his servants that with all boldness they may speak his word, that God would be the one who would stretch out his hand and heal, that God would be the one that would allow signs and wonders to be done through the name of his holy servant, Jesus. So this great power that we see occurring through the apostles, again, God is responding to that. There's great grace in the community. Grace is this idea of favor. God is giving to us what we absolutely don't deserve. The grace that God is pouring out is the same grace that is pouring out of other people's lives into the community. Sounds pretty awesome, huh? I mean, do do we not all want to be part of a community that's not going to take advantage of us? That's not going to look at me as though I am a dollar sign that's going to value my humanity, my person, my perspective. But at the same time, I'm going to do the same to others. That we're all gathered together. We came into this place this morning for the singular name of Jesus Christ. Not for the name Calvary Chapel, not for the name Blake or any other person's name. We're here because of who Jesus is. And then we're interacting with one another through the example of his love. Often in what we see and what is called church in our culture, do we see this kind of love and relationship? We see all the human power trips. We see the name calling. We see the stones throwing. We see that's not how you're supposed to do it. This is how you're supposed to do it. We see the positions and the hierarchy. We see abuses, all kinds of abuses. We see a lot of wickedness. We see a lot of the world, the outside culture, inside those who have been called out of the world into a relationship with Christ. Are we in agreement there? So this is how are we supposed to respond to this text? Why is this text so difficult? Why is it so foreign? Because none of us do this naturally. All of us, our hearts possess what we own. We use these things that we own to bring about our happiness, our desires, our wants. And again, God blesses us. 
He gives us things for our enjoyment and our, and our personal pleasure. But at the same time, those things are not to own us and control our minds and our hearts. God is. That's why there's supposed to be one mind, one heart, one soul, focused on the Lord, attentive to one another in this relationship. And the contrast that's given to us in this passage is now we're introduced to Barnabas. So Barnabas... He has this nickname, the son of encouragement, and we're going to watch him through the book of Acts, being an encourager. Great guy, great character. But he's being contrasted with two other hearts and two other characters in the Bible, Ananias and Sapphira. And here, this couple, as we talk about, the, is when we respond to who Jesus is and allow him to transform how we think and what we do and what we say, there's, there's a heart transformation. There's a mind transformation. But the description that we're given of Ananias and Sapphira is that Satan is the one that's dripping into their hearts. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie, to deceive the Holy Spirit? So think, think about what's going on in the community. These individuals, this is a Jewish culture in Jerusalem. They have responded to who Jesus Christ is. Jesus was killed by their leadership. He willingly sacrificed himself for the sins of the entire world. Their leadership doesn't like who they're following. They're now beginning in the, the, the birth of the opposition against those who, have, who were following Christ. And we're going to watch this grow in its violence. They have been, as they are looking to Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, as the one who is predicted in the text of the Old Testament, they are being excluded from their culture. They are being kicked out of their synagogues, out of their assemblies, and they're now assembling together. They need each other. They need each other's encouragement. They need each other's reminder about who Jesus Christ is. They're asking questions. This is the community that they're processing through. As the words are going out, do you think that you have a whole spectrum of human hearts who are responding to Jesus? Do you think you have different personalities? Old, young, men, women, rich, poor. You have the whole spectrum of a culture that's now being blended together in a new community. New hearts. New minds. The old life I've turned away from. I've let go of those things. There's going to be so much tension here. Understanding, figuring things that are, you know, figuring things out. We're going to watch later on that there were the, some of the widows of the Hellenists, of the Greek Jews, were being ignored in this distribution. So even their practices of taking care of those who are in need in their community, they failed in those things. So this isn't this perfect community. But now here we have an example of a singular heart or a couple who are in unity, the word that they're in symphony in regards to testing God. And this is the idea of testing God. When we attempt to do what we want to do in opposition against what we know is right to do, we are ultimately saying, God, be in on my sin with me. Does that make sense? We all know that we can't hide from God. He is the one who can see everything. He is the one who knows everything. So when we attempt to deceive one another as human beings, we can fool each other all day long. But we can never fool God. 
But when we test God, when we, this, this idea of that we are tempting God to sin, we are tempting God to be in opposition to his own character. Ananias and Sapphira in their lying to the Holy Spirit, in their testing of the Spirit of the Lord, in their lying to God, in this deception, they are soliciting God to be in on their sin with them. And God won't have anything to do with it. This picture we have multiple times in the Old Testament, but the best example that this links to in the Old Testament is with Achan. So as God is bringing out the nation of Israel... His community that he called out and delivered out of Egypt, all this imagery that we have, as he is bringing them into the land that he promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they conquered Jericho, God, is, God said, we're not coming in as a conquering army so that you can have booty. I'm not bringing you into this land because of your righteousness, because you were such a good and holy nation. And again, you can sit in the text of the first five books of the Bible and see all the issues that are going on in the nation of Israel. God says, I am bringing you into this land to deal with the wickedness of the culture that lives in this land. So it's, it's giving God's heart to his people in the warfare that has to occur. It's not that you're more righteous than this group of people. It's I've given this group, these nations, centuries to repent, centuries to turn from their wickedness that we wouldn't even talk about on a Sunday morning, and they refuse to repent. What is there that is of value, you will not touch, you will give to the community treasury, you will give to the treasury of the tabernacle. Achan stole from that. So he took what God said was, this is something that you need to consider accursed, that this is something that is unclean to you. It says that Achan, he coveted it. He desired it. He wanted it for self. And he took of that and he buried it in his tent. And then in the, in the process of figuring out what was done and who did it, the judgment of God in that circumstance, Achan was stoned. His children were stoned. Achan's sin impacted the entire community. They lost a battle because of Achan's sin. So again, God in the Old Testament, he's continually talking about the purity of the community. And the purity of the community is necessary because God is holy. So we have this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because I am holy, you who are mine, you be holy. Again, we all recognize that we can't do this in and of ourselves, but we're looking to Jesus to do it. So in this picture, here we have judgment in the New Testament. We have God with a couple, a husband and wife in our congregation. They have sold the property, sold out of their abundance, and they now have cash. And they are in symphony together to say, we're going to give only a portion and we're going to hold back the rest. The whole, the, whether it's the property or the money, it's in their possession. It's in their control. It's in their ownership to do with whatever they want. There's no obligation to give. There's no obligation to sell their property. There's no obligation to sell their house. What's going on in the community is a response to God's grace. Because God loves us. And because God's called us to love one another, we are going to do what we need to do to help take care of each other in this community. 
So in their holding back of their possession, they're trying to hide from the community and say, look at us. Look at our contribution. Look at our sacrifice for all of you. Aren't we wonderful? And we're warned against that kind of a heart because that's a heart that Satan has been dripping into. That is a heart that Satan has been deceiving. So why is it that God executed this couple in judgment? And then we can say, I mean, we could go, I bet you, through the articles of that, this last year and look at all the atrocities that have happened in different assemblies of the body of Christ and say, God, why haven't you judged here? You killed a man and a woman in judgment simply because they lied. But you allow, in our culture, you allow sexual abuse, you allow pride, you allow arrogance, you allow stealing to occur day in and day out. The proceeds that are given and laid at the feet of the stewardships of congregations, they are used for the private benefit of people all the time in our culture. Why doesn't God strike them dead? This is a singular example and again, we have singular examples in the Old, Old Testament. Not every person in the Old Testament who took something that God defined as unclean was executed as Achan was executed. But it's to expose us to the nature and character of who God is. I mean, this is, these are the, in Exodus 34 where I began when, when God declares out of his own mouth to his child, to Moses, what he is as a being in his character. That he's Lord, he's God, he's the creator, he's merciful, and that he's gracious and he's patient. He's filled with goodness. He doesn't lie, he only speaks truth. He forgives the, the wickedness of humanity as humanity turns away from all that is not God and turn towards him. And then there's that second part of it, that God absolutely holds every single human being accountable to their sin. And this is the community of believers has responded to Jesus Christ looking at Jesus and says, that is the man who died on account of my sin. My accountability for my sin was paid for by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the evidence of that is his resurrection from the dead. And then as I have responded to that, I have fought with my own heart as fighting against this culture, fighting against my desires and my wants as I followed Christ, as we drift away from him and pull back to him, as we travel down this road of life and the body of Christ together. I have offended people in the body of Christ, things that I ought not to have said, things that I ought not to have done, that I deserve judgment for. I have been offended by others in the body of Christ in like kind, and the hearts, again, it's this, 
who God is and his nature and his character, who it is that we have responded to in his purity, in his holiness, he is revealing to the early church and he is revealing to us the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who called Abraham, the God who is the God of the nation of Israel, who is the God of all the nations, who is in absolute sovereign control, is the exact same God in the New Testament. Same character. Since has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. He will still deal with our mistakes and our failings. But he has called us together as the assembled ones. As the called out ones out of this community into a group that is unified in mind and heart. Not according to our dictates but according to who he is. These are the demands that he has for us. Respond with grace to one another. Respond with mercy to one another. Don't lie to each other. Don't seek to puff yourself up in regards to your contribution to the community. But be seeking to take care of the needs within the body of Christ because we need each other. This world, this culture that we live in stands in opposition to who Jesus Christ is and his character. This world that we live in that has different principles and different values and different foundations doesn't want us to live or to promote anything about what Jesus says is true. We'll take, they'll take some of the, the good things that he says, but they won't take some, the hard things that Jesus says. Again, we have this constant drip from our culture to deviate away from who Jesus Christ is. And we see throughout the last 2,000 years, we have seen congregations and denominations deviate away from the nature and the character of who Jesus is. And that's the warning that we're being given in this passage. That as we understand who God is, this is this idea of great fear. Fear of God is awe. It is reverence. It's not just running throughout our day. It's not just running through a bunch of songs. It's not doing our church thing this morning. But it's pausing and meditating. Who is this being who has the power and the intellect not to just create the heavens and the earth but to sustain it? Why is it that he created me? Why is it that his plan A was to become a man himself and to die the death that every single human being deserves so that they can have life. Why is it that that was his plan? What is it that death had no victory over him, that he was able to take his life back to himself and come back from the dead? What does it mean that this being is in his throne room, sovereign over the nations, sovereign over his church, why does he work here, but he doesn't work there? Why is there still so much division within his body? Why do we still, if I've responded to his love and I have been made new and I have a new heart and a new mind, why do I still struggle with the old guy? If I am living this life through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within me, that I am now the tabernacle of God, through believing in Jesus Christ, why is it that I still find uncleanness in me? And again, these, these questions, we come back, it's always coming back to answering who Jesus is. And it's only realized in this awe, this reverence, and this fear, personally, in a community, when we remember God, 
When I remember God in my mind and my heart, I'm cautious with the words that I speak. I'm cautious with the actions that I take. I'm cautious with the target that my life is aimed at, the road that I am traveling and where I'm going. When I have no recognition of the Lord, when I'm just doing my own thing, that's where I drift into my own ways or into the ways of others who are communicating to me their ways. And here at the very end of this, it's talking about, again, this, these kind of bookends of what's going on in this early community as they're responding to Christ, not just in the community, in the church, but also those who are now on the outside of the church looking in. There's an esteem there. There's a respect there. But in verse 13, it says, none of the rest, none of the rest were bold enough to be glued to them. And it's a, weird, it's a weird word here. It says, none of the rest dared uh, to join them. And every other use in the New Testament, it has this idea of force. There's, a, there's an unnatural uh, joining that's going on. So none of the rest, as, they've, as they are witnessing this community, the testimony of that God just struck this couple dead because of this circumstance. These are ripples that are going into the church itself and outside of the church walls. It's causing those that are out on the outside to question whether or not to join, whether it's by a force joining or they're going to join because I want all the benefits of this community, but I'm still going to hold on to my own ways. Um, there's, there's a weirdness that's going on. But then the next sentence gives these hearts that aren't in the position of rejection, but the hearts that are in the position of repentance and understanding and yearning. Believers were set, they were put into the Lord, which is a beautiful statement. And ultimately, like when we look at ourselves as those who have gathered out of this world, in this community, we are the ones who have been set into this position, into this relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's to impact what we do together, what we do here on Sunday mornings as, as we worship God, as we teach his word, as we, as we fellowship and participate in one another's lives. It's to impact what we do as we walk outside of the doors this morning. It's to impact what we do tomorrow that that same power, that that same grace, and that that same fear that we see uh, in this snapshot in the picture of the early church, that it would be, it's, it is the same power. The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that is in us this morning. The same grace that God has demonstrated for humanity from the beginning up to the day that he will demonstrate for all eternity is the same grace that we abide in this morning. The same fear that we see in the lives of those characters in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same awe and the same reverence. Because we're talking about the same community. That again, it's not just this temporary existence that we have. We have an eternity together in relationship with one another. Imaging the being who has created us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a holy thing. It's a pure thing. It's something that God is very serious about. It's something that we ought to be very serious about. Not in a legalistic way. Not that this is what you have to do. It's always, here's who Jesus Christ is. Do you want to look like him? Yes or no? 
If you don't, there's a carving out from the community. If you do, there's a conforming into the community. Not because we're putting our stamp on you, but because we're being pressed into the image of Jesus Christ. Worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. And I, I, I am personally grateful, Lord, humbly grateful for the privilege of life. I have reminders every single day of how merciful that you've been to me. Lord, I have personally sinned against you and against your church in greater ways than Ananias and Sapphira. Personally. And you have withheld judgment. You have withheld cutting me off from the community, cutting me off from you, Lord, because of your love and because of your mercy and because of your grace, because it's who you are. I don't pick up stones and throw them at the heads of Ananias and Sapphira, Lord. My heart breaks for their sin. My heart breaks for my sin. My heart breaks for the struggle that I know that's going on in different people's lives just in our community here, Lord. My heart breaks for the sins of, of the body of Christ in this nation and throughout the world. Lord, my heart breaks for those that are still in just stubborn obstinance against you. And Lord, I know that condition of my heart is because you're the one that's transformed my heart. You've changed the way that I think You've changed what my focus is on. You've changed where I'm aiming in my life. And Lord, ultimately this morning, what I'm asking for you to do is to create the beautiful image that you have planned and purposed in your heart and your will for this community here, Lord, that you'd make us to look like your son. I hold out my mind and my life to you, Lord, my ideas and my ways, my possessions. I hold out all that I am to you, Lord, and I'm asking for your will to be performed. Use my life to, to bring you glory. Use my life to meet the needs of my brothers and sisters. Use my life, Lord, to, to share your beauty and your wonder and the reality and the truth of you are to, to the world around me. I have been absolutely personally overwhelmed and humbled by your continual love for me. So Lord, I'm praying that for this community, that we would be overwhelmed by your love. That these words that we sing, Lord, that it wouldn't be just some religious ritual, but all that we are, our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, our effort, Lord, everything that you have given to us, may we give back to you for your glory and your praise. You're worthy, Lord, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.